Special thank you to Dr. Jeffrey and Mrs. Janice Saverin for sponsoring tonight's shear. Thank you so much. Special thank you as well to Torah Anytime who shares this shear with many people across the country and throughout the world. Dreams. Here comes the dreamer. I wanted to uh, talk about dreams. Dreams have mystified humanity for thousands of years. They've been a significant part of culture, religion, superstition. For thousands of years, we have um, different discoveries from ancient Mesopotamia, it was clear that dreams had significance. Now, there are two types of dreams. There's dream in a literal sense, where you're thinking about something as you're sleeping. And there's also a dream, like in the words of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, I have a dream, where it's more of a vision, it's an aspiration, it's a hope for the future like to talk about both types of dreams and how potentially they're related. I uh, do not want to explore the interpretation of dreams because that's a very uh, foggy, subtle area which is hard to have any clarity in. But um, I do want to help become a dreamer. So I want to talk about dreams and I want to talk about how do we become dreamers. And the third thing is, how can we, or at least what can we do to make our dreams a reality? How can we take a dream and bring it into fruition? Tomorrow is a famous day in America. We know that on December 7th, 1941, in the words of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, it's a day that will live in infamy. 7.55 on December 7th, Japanese dive bombers, fighter bombers, and torpedo planes attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor near Honolulu. And at the time, like you see in the sheet, they assumed 1,500 Americans were dead, but in reality there were over 2,400 Americans that died that day, and more than 1,700 that were wounded. So we'll be observing that day tomorrow. However... There's something else that took place on December 7th, 1941. People that come from the same background, the same yeshiva that I come from, are probably familiar with this. But most other people in the world and most other Jews probably have no clue that December 7th, 1941, was the Leviah, that was the funeral of Reb David Leibowitz. Who was Reb David Leibowitz? I want to share with you a few words describing his life and his dream, and we'll try to appreciate how he brought his dream into reality, and how can we potentially learn from the life of Reb David. He was born in 1889, one of four children. He had two sisters and a brother. His younger brother was known as Reb Moshe, supposed to be a brilliant uh, person. At age four, the, uh, the Leibowitz family moved to Warsaw, 
And in Warsaw, he was known as Reb David of Arsher, Reb David of Warsaw. Around 12 years old, which is 1902, he enrolled in the yeshiva in Lomzho, and he was only there for about a year. Chafetz Chaim, who was his father, his father was Ari Ezev, his father's uncle was the renowned Chafetz Chaim, Yisrael Meir Kagan. And he would come for a visit once in a while to Warsaw, and he would schmooze with his great-nephew, little David. And the Chafetz Chaim was always impressed with David, and they would talk and learning and discuss complicated areas of different parts of halacha. So after a year of David being in the yeshiva locally, his great-uncle sends the message that he would love to invite David to join him in Radin. That was where the yeshiva, the Chafetz Chaim, was. So the time of David was about 12 or so, 12 or 13. He moves to Radin and he stays actually in the home of the Chafetz Chaim for a while. And they learn together Bechavruso, one-on-one learning. They had a program of learning from 9 a.m. in the morning until 9 p.m. at night. It was a 12-hour Seder without hardly any breaks. And those of you who are familiar with the Mishnah Brura, one of the greatest, most user-friendly halachic works that we have, Rabbi David learned together with the Chafetz Chaim parts of the, the sixth chilek, the sixth part of the, the Mishnah Brura, writing together halacha that was a very impressive and an amazing accomplishment and something that we all learn every day. It's a story where David is sitting with the Chafetz Chaim and they have all these books on the table trying to figure out something so complex. And David turns to the Chafetz Chaim and he says, people will have no clue how long we worked to get to this halacha, to arrive at this conclusion. And the Chafetz Chaim said back to Rav David, which was a very broad hashkafa throughout his whole life. He said, that's true, but it doesn't really matter. People work very hard when they make the train tracks. And when you're on the train, sitting back in your seat, enjoying your, your Coke, nobody thinks about how many hours and years it took to make the train tracks. But as long as you get from point A to point B, you're good. So as long as people can get from point A to point B when they learn the halacha, we've accomplished our goal. In 1908, when Rav David was 19 years old, he was invited to join the yeshiva in Slobodka. In Slobodka, we, we've mentioned before a few times, Rabbi Avtoli Trupp was the, the Rosh Hashiva, and he was known for his sheer brilliance. Um, the, the message that Rabbi Avtoli Trupp sent after learning in Slobodka for a while, I'm sorry, Rabbi Avtoli Trupp was the head of the yeshiva in Radin. The Chafetz Chaim was the spiritual head, and Rav Naftali Trapp was more of the, the head of the Talmudic studies. Rav Naftali Trapp sends the message to Slobodka, you should know, although David's only 19 years old, he's a sholem in lomdis. He's complete in his ability to analyze a Gemara. He's ready to go. So he goes to Slobodka, and we've mentioned that the, the head of Slobodka, the mastermind, was the altar of Slobodka, of Nassim Svi Finkel. And at uh, the age of 26, in 1915, he marries Rivka Leah. And together they have one son. In 1916, little Hanach is born. 
who becomes the Rosh Hashiva of Chafetz Chaim eventually down the road. That's actually Mr. Kramer's oldest son, Hanach, is named after Hanach Leibowitz. 1921, Reb David is offered different positions and he eventually becomes a Rav. He's a Rav of a town, he takes over his father-in-law's position. Um, but then he's invited back to Slobodka, again by the altar of Slobodka. They want to make a unique kolel, a learning program for people who are already very accomplished. Some of the names in that group were Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rav Huttner, Rav Aaron Cutler. So Rav David, although he was a rabbi, he was a pulpit rabbi for five, six, seven years, he left his position and he went back to Kolo. Now, the plan, the policy of the Kolo was that you would learn straight with intensity for five years and then you would go to America for fundraising for a year. That was all part of the program. So leaving his position, uh, going to the Kolo, there wasn't much money, but he consulted with his, his great uncle, the Chafetz Chaim, and he encouraged him to do so. So he went to Kolo, and they lived a very, very meager existence. Hearing stories from the Rosh Hashiva, Reb Hanach, he said they lived in an attic where they'd have to climb a ladder to get to their little place where they would sleep. There was one bedroom for his father and mother, Reb David and Rifkalea. And, uh, and, and little, little Hannah, who was a little boy at the time, he slept on two chairs that were put together. That was his bed. So now it's his time, after five years of learning intensely in the kolel, to go to America and to fundraise on behalf of the kolel. And in 1926, he finds himself in America, and there's a yeshiva that's starting off. Yeshiva is Torah Vedas. And at the time, they were looking into hiring the head of a yeshiva, and they had somebody in mind who was known to be brilliant. But now they meet Reb David Leibowitz, who's also in town. So after going back and forth, they invite him to become the head of Torah Vedas. Now, Reb David, at this point in his life, he wasn't sure what to do. Again, he sends word to his great uncle, the Chafetz Chaim, and the Chafetz Chaim, through, I guess, telegraph, sends back, if you could teach Torah in America, although it's not really a Torah environment, you should do so. And, and the, the, the guiding words of the Chafetz Chaim to Rav David is you should be a Marbitz Torah. You should spread Torah. Take the Torah that you've learned, take the Torah that you've mastered, and spread it to the world. That has to be your focus. Share it with others. Like the Mishnah Perkyovo says, Im lamata Torah harbei, if you've learned a lot of Torah, don't keep the Torah for yourself, give it to others. That's why you were created. So upon the instructions of the Chafetz Chaim, Rav David takes the job as the Rosh Hashiv in Torah Vedas. And he's there for about seven years and eventually he starts his own yeshiva. 1933, that's the same year his great uncle, the Chafetz Chaim, passes away. He starts his own yeshiva and he calls it the yeshiva's Chafetz Chaim, after his great uncle. Now what I gave you was a, a few minutes, just a synopsis of the life of Reb David. He, he ends up passing away at 52 years old, with a massive heart attack. He actually had a heart attack before then, I think in 1939, 1940, and he was really in a weakened state. 
But he continued learning and teaching to the point where he had to have the young yeshiva bachrim, the people learning in the yeshiva, physically carry him up the stairs to the study hall to be able to teach them Gemara. So he had a dream. The dream was infused within him from his great uncle, the Chafetz Chaim. He went through a lot of turmoil in his life. He went through tragedy. He lost his brother. His brother, Moshe was only 36 when he passed away. He was living in poverty during the times of, of the Great Depression. And the question is, did his dream come to fruition? If you were to stop right there when he passed away, you're standing there with some people, there weren't thousands of people at his funeral, December 7th, 1941. Did he make it? Did he come to America, which was a wasteland of Torah where they hardly had any, anything? There was hardly any real authentic Judaism on the shores of America. Did he change America? Did he change the world? Not really. A sincere fellow, a brilliant Torah scholar. However, his son kept up his legacy. He believed very much in the mission. And um, he carried on the yeshiva. And for decades, the yeshiva was not thriving. However, if you look around, and, and forget about the world, forget about America, now we're living in 2017, and there are many great yeshivas here in America. Baruch Hashem. The yeshiva Chafetz Chaim that Rav David founded, just looking at South Florida, we pause for a moment, and we think, all of us in this room, we wouldn't be here tonight without the mysterious nefesh, the dedication, the blood, sweat, and tears of this man named Rabdavid Leibowitz. You never heard of his name before. But we wouldn't be here tonight. The shul wouldn't exist without Rabdavid Leibowitz having a dream and passing it on to his son who created the yeshiva. The school Torah Academy wouldn't exist. These are all disciples from that yeshiva. The yeshiva across town, TTB, wouldn't be here either. The young Israel across town wouldn't be here. Torres Chaim in North Miami Beach wouldn't be here. Torres Emmis, the, the elementary school in North Miami. None of these places or institutions would be here. The JEC wouldn't be here. Nothing would exist. We'd have other Baruch Hashem, wonderful places of Torah. But hundreds and hundreds of people wouldn't have that same connection to Torah without the dream of that one man. That one man, until the day he died, we still had no clue that his dream actually came to reality. Now we look back in hindsight and we're, we stand in awe. So how did he do it? How do you keep on pushing? How do you keep on striving to accomplish your dream? Now we have ten different dreams throughout Beratius. Most people, when they think of a famous dream in the Torah, they think of the dreams of Yosef. However, it's a little bit surprising because what's the very first dream we encounter in the Torah? It's the dream of Avimelech. Avimelech takes Sarah, the wife of Avram, assuming that really she is Avram's sister. And then Hashem comes to Avimelech in the dream and He tells him, by the way, don't touch her, she's a married woman. That's the first dream we have in the Torah. Then we have the famous dream of Yaakov and the ladder with the Malachim ascending and coming down. Then we have a dream, almost a technical dream, where Yaakov is shown through divine intervention 
plans for what kind of sheep, basically helping him financially. Then we have a dream that Lovan has. Lovan, when he finds out that Yaakov leaves with all of his family, he pursues him. And the night before he catches up with Yaakov, Hashem comes to Lovan in a dream and says, don't touch him. Don't touch Yaakov. I'm warning you. So there are at least four dreams that we encounter before the dreams of Yosef. What are significant about the dreams of Yosef? Yosef was the first one that we're told who had a dream where there was no clear divine communication. There was no angel speaking to him. Hashem was not somehow giving him a message. It was just a dream, seeing things, seeing sheaves in the field, or or seeing stars in the sky. And Yosef felt those dreams were significant. Now what was the response when he told his brothers? We know they clearly didn't appreciate the fact that, first of all, Dad seems to like Yosef more than us. And now he's sharing these dreams of grandeur, and the guy's a Balgaiva, he's arrogant, he's haughty. So the Torah tells us, Yosef shares his dream with his father and his brothers. This is the second dream, with the sun and moon and the eleven stars all bowing down to him. What's the response of Yaakov? He, he yells at him. The what is this dream that you're sharing with me? You assume that me and your mother are going to bow down before you? The chutzpah. His brothers had more jealousy of him. And his father, literally shamar means his father guarded the matter. He kept it in mind. Rashi explains... When Yaakov kept it in mind, he understood there was reality to these dreams. He understood they weren't just childish imagination at work, but he knew there was some kind of prophecy. He guarded the matter. It meant he looked forward with anticipation. When would these things actually come true? In what way? What does that mean? So Yaakov understood there was something real to these dreams, and therefore... He looked forward to when they would come true. When we look throughout the Gemara, we find some sources that indicate the dreams are some level of prophecy, and we have other sources that seem to say, I don't mean anything, not a big deal, don't pay attention. The Gemara in Bracha says that sleeping is one-sixtieth of death. Probably depends how you sleep also. I don't want to name my child by name, but I have one kid who, when he sleeps, I think it's more than 160th. <laughs> He's like, out! You can't wake him up. So sleeping is 160th of death, and chalom, a dream, echad mishishim l'nevuah, is 160th of prophecy. So there's something there, the Gemara seems to be saying, there's a little bit of prophecy in a dream. And the Gemara in Chagika tells us that Although Hashem informs us that in the future I will hide my face from you, meaning to say I will not be as real, as tangible, you're not going to see me, but even though I'm going to be hiding from you, that's the whole reality of living in Gullis and living in exile, 
but I'll still communicate with you in a dream. So I'm not leaving you by yourself, I'll still talk to you in a dream. However, we have a different Gemara in Brachos that says, just like it's impossible for grain to grow without the straw, so too it's impossible to have a dream without the chaff. It's impossible to have a dream without some nonsense. Every dream has some nonsense in it. Right? Sometimes you'll be having a dream and it's somewhat lucid and you kind of think you know what's going on and then you see this random you know, flying zebra. So that's nonsense. There might be meaning here, but there's chaff, not just the kernel. Uh, the Gemara explains that even if a dream comes true, the entire dream doesn't have to come true. Part of it can come to fruition, and the other part is viewed as nonsense. And lastly, the Gemara tells us that when we think of things in our dream, What's shown to a person while he or she is sleeping, that's from hihurilibo, that's from the thoughts of one's mind throughout the day. And this is very much in line with what the world of psychology will teach us. Sigmund Freud made it big in 1900 with his, his first book, The Interpretation of Dreams. And in Freud's understanding of dreams, everything we come to mind, everything that's part of the imagination as I'm sleeping, that's all based on something in the subconscious mind. So if you could analyze everything, Everything is potentially significant because it, it's telling me something about myself. So this Gemara seems to be in line with Freud. Not everything that Freud said. He said a lot of wacky things as well. I guess what the Gemara said before, there could be nonsense and, and, and tochen and content. There is definitely nonsense there in Freudian psychology. But this aspect seems to be on the ball. So on one hand, it's the 60th of prophecy. It's, it's Hashem's way of, of talking to us even when His face is hidden. Yet we're also told that you have chaff, not just the grain, and often what we're thinking about while we're sleeping is just a reflection of what was going through my mind throughout the day. And there's an interesting verse in Kohelis where Shlomo Melech writes, Ki berov inyin, A dream comes based on much agonizing. The more I'm thinking or stressing out about something, the more it's on my mind, likely I'll have a dream about it. And foolish statements come out of your mouth when you speak too much. So those two things go together. The more I'm thinking about something, the more likely it is that will come up in a dream. And the more I'm talking without thinking, the more likely I'll say something foolish. So when Rashi explains this verse in Gohelis, Rashi says, It's the way of a dream to come based on what we're thinking about. Whatever we're looking into, whatever we're spending our time on during the day, that will come up in a dream at night. I remember in my yeshiva years, when I actually had a chance to learn with some level of intensity, Sometimes I would wake up and realize I had a whole dream going back and forth in the Gemara. And it was such an amazing thing. You go to sleep after learning for many, many hours, and you wake up reviewing the Rashba. Didn't have it often, but when I did, it was, it was unbelievable. 
Now I just have dreams about like changing diapers and forgetting to get the orange juice at Publix. They say about the Vilna Gon, the Gon only slept four hours within a 24-hour day. He had a whole system where he would be up and then he would sleep for half an hour. But even when he was sleeping, he wasn't really sleeping. His children said about their father, the Vilna Gon, that he would go to sleep in mitoch kushia, right, bothered and disturbed by a question, and he would wake up a half an hour later with three different answers. So he wasn't just reviewing, but he was actually getting more information. What, what's the basic idea of a dream being connected to prophecy? Or a dream enabling us to have some greater understanding of something more so than, we're, than when we're conscious? The basic idea, commentators explain, is that when we're conscious and we're awake in the physical world, so we're also more limited. We're bound by time and space. And we could only think within the confines of this reality. So when, when prophets actually received prophecy, and this is true for all of them with the exception of Moshe, he was in a league of his own, but for all the other prophets, the Rambam tells us, they had to be sleeping to receive prophecy. They had to be unconscious more more receptive to, to the outside other dimensions of this of this limited reality to receive the, the, that force of prophecy. So dreams are only applicable when we're sleeping, and at that point, we're not as constrained, we're not as confined, then it's possible to be tapping into other worlds. It's possible to be exposed to, to more information. We're not just living 3 or 4D, we have 6 or 7D. Many different dimensions. There, there's a phrase from the Rambam. The Rambam has a famous work, the Mor Nevuchim. And when he speaks about dreams, he quotes this Gemara that says, a dream can be one-sixtieth of prophecy. And he says the, uh, the analogy would, bring, would be the, uh, the buds of fruit. They're not, they're not ripened yet. They're not full fruits but it's the potential for a fruit. So too in a dream, it's not real prophecy. That ended a long time ago. Around the year 350 BCE, there was no such thing as real old-fashioned prophecy where you have Hashem directly communicating with human beings. But a dream is the bud of prophecy. There's something there. It's not real prophecy, it's not as vivid, it's not as clear, but I can still tune into something in a dream. So we have some dreams that seem to mean a lot, some dreams that don't mean that much. And we're actually told as well, just to give you one more piece of the puzzle, that a dream that's not interpreted is like a letter that's not yet opened. If you don't interpret a dream, according to Gemara and Brachos, it sounds like you're almost withholding the power of the dream. It doesn't have its impact if you don't interpret the dream. Now that's very hard to understand because if there's any level of message whatsoever, why is that dependent on your understanding of what I'm telling you? And, and that's a discussion that's well beyond the scope of our discussion. But, but there is a force to someone interpreting your dream for you. And that doesn't mean that you go to any 
any person who wants to kick back in a, in a chair with a big cigar and start, you know, conjecturing, you know, it happens to be the, uh, the grass you were seeing is probably symbolic of something organic, and therefore you should be eating more organic foods in general. You have to go to someone who actually knows what he or she is doing. And if they understand the koach of dreams, and they guide you in a particular direction, that could actually make a difference in the fulfillment of that dream. Sometimes dreams are so disturbing, the Shulchan Aruch tells us you should fast after having a dream. And that could rectify whatever negative message there was potentially. Usually we can't fast on Shabbos, but to fast for a negative dream is really the one exception where you're allowed to fast on Shabbos. So clearly dreams could have significance, but yet we don't really know how to interpret them. And if we don't interpret them, they might not mean anything, but they still might mean something. So I hope you're thoroughly confused, because I am. <laughs> That's why we're not going to interpret dreams. I want to share with you, though, after all the dust has settled, we do have different sources, and ultimately there are different people and different dreams. And I think the conventional wisdom is, when you're normal, like we are, and we're not very, very righteous, we haven't climbed up all the rungs of the ladder of, of Kedusha and, and Sanctity, likely the vast majority of what we think of during the night is based on nonsense. The vast majority of what we're imagining in our dreams is the chaff and not the kernel. That's the assumption. However, if someone is plagued by a dream, or it's so real it, it frightens you, then there is actually something you could do. It's called Hatavas Chalom. The Gemara speaks about this, the Shulchan Aruch speaks about this, and in many Sidurim it has it where you could say a little paragraph that will undo whatever the potential negative impact is of a particular dream. I have a, a teacher of mine who once called me over. It was right after Shachris in the morning, and he was very like secretive about the whole thing. Noach, come here for a second. I was very close with him. I still am, Baruch Hashem. So he called me over, and he called over a couple other people, and he kind of led us into a back room, thinking to myself, what's going on? And he says, please don't tell anybody I'm doing this, but I had a really strange dream last night that's really bothering me. I want to just read the Hatavas Chalom. You're supposed to read it in front of three people. So we went through it, and he read it to us, and we were there to function as a basin of some sort. Afterwards, I asked him, I said, why do it in private? Wouldn't it be a nice, almost a way of educating others that if they have bad dreams? And he said, I don't want people to know I do this, because I don't think a person should do this, maybe once or twice or three times in a lifetime, because otherwise it just creates a very unhealthy cycle where you always start getting almost superstitious. I had a bad dream, it was a nightmare, and if I don't say the Hatavas Chalom, then who knows what's going to happen, and now every other day I'm saying the same thing because I'm scared of it. I don't want to start that in the yeshiva. I felt personally it was, it was significant, so I wanted to say it, but say it in private. So there is such a thing to do if one's bothered by a dream. I want to read to you from, the, from uh, Rav Kook. Rav Kook has a Sefer Midbar Shur, and uh, how I found this was actually somewhat miraculous because I, I, I saw quoted before from this Sefer 
something that Rav Cook wrote on dreams. And then when I was looking through the Sefer, I had no clue how to find it. So I flipped open to the 24th Drusha, and that's where he starts speaking about the idea behind dreams. So you have to, you know, once in a while you have to see these things. I, I could have been there looking for this for, for 45 minutes. Eventually I would have called him Chaim Goldstein and somehow he would have found it for me. But. So Rav Cook speaks about the purpose of why Hashem created dreams. This is in source number 12. He says, Shetachlis Brias Hashem Yisbara Chalomos Beteva Nefesh Adam. The reason why Hashem created dreams was precisely in order to convey messages to us. Because according to a, a human being who's Yashrus, who is, who is so in tune with, with doing the right thing, and he's trained his mind in thinking in a logical way. So then naturally, any dream you have will be directing you, will be guiding you. You'll be learning or gaining something from the dream because even though it comes from me to some degree, it could still be prophecy based on who I am. The person that I've transformed myself into, I'm now able to have dreams that are more significant, that could actually guide me in life. However, says Rav Cook, based on the decline of humanity, that so much of our existence were constantly bombarded with taiva and physical desires, and all these different thoughts are now coming into our head. The Rosh Hashiva used to say, this is Reb Henech Leibowitz, the son of Reb Dovah Leibowitz. Whenever someone would talk about having all these bad thoughts, and I can't believe I've been learning in yeshiva now for 14 years, and I'm still thinking about all this garbage, his response was always, the mind is an open garbage can. Don't be surprised. And sometimes... You know when these thoughts actually enter your mind more so than not? When you're not thinking about many other things. And there are two times in life or throughout the day that happens. Right before you go to sleep, that's an ideal time for all sorts of wacky thoughts to enter your mind. And the second is when you're davening Shmona Esrei. <laughs> also an ideal time where I'm not thinking about much, then you have all these weird thoughts. So Cook writes that nowadays we're so exposed to so many different thoughts. Nishtonu alav sidre bereshis b'idin chalom. Now the whole reality of a dream is, is different than it was before. Because there's so much chaff and so little kernel. However, he says, there's one thing that even we, in our lowly state, and we might not be righteous, and we might not be tzaddikim, but we could tap into something. When we have a dream that's an ambition, that there's something within us, and perhaps we, we feel it more when we're sleeping because we're able to be in that state of the imagination, there's something that's compelling me to grow, or there's something that's encouraging me to, to be a better person. Or oftentimes you might have a dream about a conflict in relationship, and you wake up either mad at that person for saying whatever they did in the dream, but that might even help you become closer to that person. There are so many studies, by the way, on, on why we have dreams. In the scientific world, the answer is still, I don't know. That's the answer. That's the official answer. And there are many theories out there. I said, quick question by a show of hands. I was so curious when I read this study. 
do you more often than not have a dream where it's just you in a particular situation without your family? Let's say you're married or you have children, but it's still in the dream, it's usually just you alone, by a show of hands. Now by a show of hands, who would say that usually when I'm dreaming about any particular situation, I'm together with my, my spouse or my child or children. So it's interesting, the vast majority of people raise their hands that I'm usually alone. Now, certain studies have shown, and I haven't verified the authenticity of this, that there's actually a difference in gender. More men will say that they're alone in a dream, not together with their, with their loved ones. Whatever it is, they're trying to get out of the, the dungeon before they're devoured by the dragon. <laughs> but they're not schlepping along their kids. They're, they're somehow on their own whatever. And yet more women will say, I'm usually together with my husband or my children. Now again, what does that show about men? I don't know. But that's not a pretty indication. So Cook says the one type of dream that we could still learn from and we could still pay close attention to is a dream that inspires me to become better, that pushes me to grow, that, that compels me to become a better and more loving mother or father. He says that's true on, a, on an individual sense. That's, that's what was going on with Yosef. Yosef had this potential, his unique potential within him, that he was inspired through the dreams. And that's also true, says Rav Kook, when it comes to the Am Yisrael, Klal Yisrael as a nation, that we have a special segula, we have a, a, a force or, a, or a, a mission within us, that we're also inspired by dreaming. Dreaming could be while we're sleeping, or it could be while we're awake and we're yearning, and we're desiring to be in a, in, in a better place. He says, when we say in Tehillim, we say this before we bench on Shabbos, Shir HaMalos B'Shuv Hashem, this is a song of the ascents before Hashem, he's B'Shuv Hashem as Shiva Tzion. When Hashem restores Tzion, I would say it's connected to what happened today, but I'm not sure what happened today, so we'll leave that for now. Hainu Kecholmim, we were like dreamers. Now literally, Rev. Cook explains, Hayinu kechola means we were in the past tense. It sounds like David HaMelech is talking about the future. Oz pinu. Then our mouths will be filled with laughter, talking about the time of redemption. But why would he say we were like dreamers in the past? So explains Rev. Cook, we were only Zoha to Geula. We were able to merit redemption because we were dreaming and yearning for it. He's not talking about the future. He's saying in the future when we rejoice with the redemption, that will be based on Hayinu Kecholmim. We were dreaming of it all the time. So what's clear from Avkuk is whatever dreams mean, whatever they don't mean, if it's a dream that can inspire us, then we have to pay close attention to that dream and we have to continue to dream. I think the first step to having our dreams come true is having time to dream. I once heard a very prestigious Rosh Hashiva say that going back 30 years ago, so kids, if they weren't learning, they were battling. 
What does it mean to battle? It's to waste time. You sit there and you're spacing out, you're doing nothing. It's called batala. He said, nowadays there's no such thing as batala. People don't waste time anymore. Now it's just we become distracted. We can't waste time. And that's such a loss. Because when you're spacing out, when you're wasting time, even though I'm not learning right now, but at least I'm here. I'm present. I'm thinking of something. Having time to think enables you to dream. If I'm never alone with myself, and whenever I'm in the waiting room, I have to take out my cell phone within 4.3 seconds, otherwise I start getting jittery. So that means we don't have time to dream. So the first step to accomplishing our dreams or making them come true is dreaming. And that requires time to think about where I want to be. We can't allow ourselves to be distracted every second of our waking life. Step two, and this gets back to the life and legacy of Rebdavid Leibowitz, we have to be stubborn. We have to be stubborn. We have to have chutzpah. There's an amazing prayer when Moshe Rabbeinu turns to Hashem after the golden calf and he's trying to, to encourage Hashem to forgive the Jewish people, he says, please Hashem, stay within our midst, be with us, stay bekerbeinu, we want you to be close to us. Why? What's my argument for why you should forgive the Jewish people? Ki am kishay orifu, because we're stiff-necked. Huh? Stay with us, love us, be with us, guide us, don't leave us. We're stiff-necked. That's a hard argument. If you would have said, because we love you so much, we, we have such a deep appreciation for everything you've done for us, don't leave us now, you're like our father. But why is Moshe saying we're stiff-necked and therefore don't leave us? Comes along the Ralbag, one of the great commentators in the 1300s, and he says, Moshe was trying to tell Hashem, it's true they're very stubborn. And that's why if they get into schmutz, if they get into distraction, they can stay there for a long time. But it's because they're so stubborn, it's because they're so strong, it's because they're so not willing to budge, that if you would just have Rahmanis, you would have compassion on them and allow them back in, until they would be steeped in the moon and faith in you, then trust me, they're never going to budge from that. The Jewish people are stubborn, and because we're stubborn, don't let us go, because once we're in, we're always in. So to take a dream from an idea, from a thought, from a nice concept, and bring it to any level of reality, we have to be stubborn. But now I want to share with you the third and final thing, which you will not find elsewhere. You're not going to find this in pop psychology. When we dream and especially when we're stubborn and committed to following through in the dream, sometimes we forget about one very crucial ingredient, which is dependent on my own dream coming true. You know what that is? It's not forgetting that other people have dreams also. If we're so stubborn and we're so committed and we're so stuck at what I need to accomplish, to the extent where I don't care about them, I'm going to trample all over them. I've got to get to this, this level. I have to make this much money. Or I have to learn this much Torah. And I don't think about where you're coming from or what your dreams or aspirations are. 
I'll never really be matzliach. I won't succeed myself. And we see this from the life of Yosef. Now, I first heard this idea last Shabbos from a fellow Sam from Baltimore, friendly with the Seidel family. And when he told it to me, I gave him a big hug and a kiss. And then later I found it this past week in the Rebbeinu Bechaya. So Sam from Baltimore and the Rebbeinu Bechaya. What was the turning point in Yosef's life? Things were going very downhill very fast. If you now picture yourself in, in Yosef's shoes, he's sitting in jail. There's no hope for his future. He's been sold into slavery from his brothers. He's never going to see them again in his own assessment. And now I'm in the middle of this dark and lonely place, in the middle of nowhere. What's my future? How do you not get so incredibly depressed at that state? The Torah tells us, source number 15, source number 17, the Yovo, Alehem, Yosef, the Boker, we're told that the Sar Mashkim and the Sar Ofim, the head of the, the, the butlers and the head of the bakers, they were also sent in that same jail with Yosef. And Yosef wakes up in the morning, Vayar Osam, and he sees them. Vihinei, Vihinam Zoafim. And he could tell they were distraught. He could tell that something was wrong. paro asherito. So he asked the, 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 the nobles of, of Paro who were with him, together in the prison, Madua Penechem Roim Hayom. What's the matter? Why do you seem so depressed? What's going on? Share with me. Why was he asking that question? First of all, many of the commentators point out, who are you? You're a little kid. You have these high-ranking officers who happen to be thrown in the same jail as you are. For you to even have the audacity to approach these people is one thing. That, that takes a level of courage. But why do you care how they're doing? These are, these are gross, disgusting Egyptians living in the, 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 the center of, of that entire culture that's so warped and... and, and why are you talking to them? Says there Ben Abachaya, because Yosef wanted to be a mensch. He understood that, that something was wrong, and he wanted to ask them how they were doing. And even though they were Rishoyim, even though they were wicked, lowly, disgusting people, even though there were people that he didn't want to be with or hang out with, nonetheless, he wanted to ask them how they were doing because something was wrong. Would you have the, the, the patience or even the thought to ask someone how they're doing? You would be so swallowed up in your own misery. You wouldn't think about these random people. But it's because he asked them how they were doing, that was the turning point in his entire life. It was because he cared about these people that eventually they shared with him their dreams and he was able to interpret their dreams and then eventually that was reported back to Paro and that got him out of that hell. That got him out of the, the prison to eventually become the viceroy, to become the leader of Mitzrayim, to save his family. But the turning point was caring about somebody else's dream. That could spell the difference between accomplishing your own dreams and living with a lack of, of, of success. I share with you an amazing story. There's a fellow, Rabbi Yisrael Klein. He, uh, he was a man who passed away in his 80s. He was well known in, in Israel. 
He was designated by the Belzer Rebbe as the Balkore, as the one who would read the Torah every week for the community. So he was very well known. And uh, during his shiva, many different people from all walks of life came in to offer their condolences to the family. He had a few sons and some daughters. And there was one man that came in that nobody recognized. He didn't have any relationship with any of the sons or daughters. And uh, he walked in, he sat right in front of the children who were there sitting shiva. And uh, he said, I came here tonight because I wanted to tell you a story about your father. It's only because of him I'm religious myself today. He said, I was a youngster, maybe 15, 16 years old in Auschwitz, and I was starving. And I was going from garbage heap to another, searching desperately for any scrap of food I could possibly find, and I couldn't find anything. I was terrified I would die from hunger. As I'm going from place to place, I see another fellow, a few years older than I am, who's also searching for something to eat. That fellow was Rabbi Yisrael, your father. He came over to me and he said, I too am looking for food, but I haven't found anything yet. He then came closer to me and he said, I wish I could give you something, but all I can give you is a hug. And he leaned over, a man a few years older, 19, 20 years old, and he gave me this hug where he embraced me, and he was crying, and he told me, he said, just never forget that a Kaddish Baruch Hu loves you. Never forget that a Kaddish Baruch Hu loves you. Never forget that I love you. You're a Yid, you're my brother, I love you. He said, that changed my life forever. The, the idea of, of being in a situation where it's so easy to focus on how, how depressed I am, how lowly I am, how, how I, 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 there's so much more I'd rather be doing, or in a case like this where it's so extreme, where I'm starving to death, you're going to think about somebody else? But the answer is, yeah. If we want our own dreams to come to fruition, that's a key ingredient. Reb David Leibowitz with all of his mysterious nefesh and all of his sacrificing for Torah, it was only because it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my yeshiva. It was about doing the right thing. It was about not trampling on somebody else. Because he had that clarity of vision, he was matzliach. He was able to create a yeshiva that's now blossomed into an amazing forest within Klal Yisro. We have many dreams and many of them are confusing, many of them are scary, and some of them are just sheer nonsense. But the goal is to take a dream that could be inspiring, grab onto it, and try to change our lives based on that. Step number one is giving ourselves time to dream. We can't always be distracted. You have to bottle a little bit also. You have to waste some time. Let your mind wander. Step number two is you have to have audacity, chutzpah, and you have to be stubborn to keep on pursuing that dream at all costs. But step number three is, the one thing that I will never do is trample on somebody else. No matter how much I want my own dream to come true, I want your dream to come true as well. Have a wonderful evening.